I didn't put mortgages in the properties and then use that money to buy the next. I just had the cash to buy these properties. And when I ran out of cash at maybe number 11 or 12, then I sold the house in DC and took all that money and kept buying properties. Looking back, that wasn't the fastest way, but I would say that it was a fairly conservative way too, because, you know, had I done it with leverage and maybe bought 30 or 40 or 50 properties instead of the 20 that I had, if the market would have tanked or if there would have been some serious problem, maybe if COVID had been a little more scary and people had actually been shaken out of the market, one of those people might have been me. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. If you're a high-earning, busy pro who wants to learn how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job, this is the show for you. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Rich Carey. Rich is a successful real estate investor. He's an Air Force veteran who owns 30 doors, and he didn't start that way. He started with just the one, and today we're learning about his journey, starting with that first property that he turned into a rental to ultimately scaling his real estate portfolio from a distance. He was buying real estate from overseas, being very successful in buying a single family rentals in Montgomery, Alabama. Today, we learned how he built a team, how he built systems, and why he ultimately decided to fire his property managers and take over the day-to-day management of his properties. A lot of folks tend to go the other direction. They tend to start self-managing and ultimately decide to hire property managers. He decided to go the other way. Today, we dig into why and how he has built systems and teams and processes to make sure his rentals don't become another job in his retirement. He is a wealth of knowledge and inspiration. You're going to learn a ton today from Rich Carey and his process of building a sizable real estate portfolio. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotz. I'm a real estate investor. I focus mainly on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Schedule a call and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Rich Carey. Let's go. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to go through your journey of investing while you were in the military to ultimately retiring and being financially free through your real estate investments. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you're up to today? And then we can rewind the clock to how you got started. Yeah, sure, Taylor. And thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. Currently, I just recently got my real estate license. That's something that I think all investors contemplate. And I contemplated for about 20 years and then finally did it. But I have about 30 doors. I self-manage those doors. I retired from the military in 2020. I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. So I'm managing properties that I own and self-management. I used to have a managing company. I've actually had several over the past, I'd say, you know, 12 years. And now, in addition to that, I'm doing things like buying a property and either taking it in and having it be a long-term rental or buying it, fixing up a little bit and selling it. So I guess, you know, flipping. I'm toying with both of those things, you know, kind of done one of each recently and about to do another flip again, living my first mobile home. So that's kind of what I'm up to right now. 
Awesome. How did you originally get started? Because I think a lot of folks see folks like yourself with 30 doors and they say, wow, that's such a great accomplishment, but they don't see the potential trajectory of how to get themselves there, how to start with that first one. How did you get started? Well, like I mentioned before, I had a career in the Air Force and I joined the Air Force in 2000 out of college and I wanted to invest in real estate, just had a strong interest in it. But my first assignment ended up being overseas. I was in a place called Guam, like an island out in the middle of nowhere. They had typhoons and earthquakes all the time. I didn't want to buy anything there. In 2003, I got to D.C. and again, eager to do something with real estate, bought a townhouse. I bought a townhouse for $280,000. I thought it was the worst decision of my life. I thought I overpaid by hundreds of thousands. And that just ended up not being true. When I I moved away two years later, you know, to, let's say I moved to California, I turned that property into a rental. And that sort of started my, I guess you could say, real estate career. I mean, when you're in the military, you move everyone to three years. And then a series of things happened over the next several years, but I I tried my hand. I tried to buy more properties, but the pro- but the prices were rising so quickly, I, I kind of chickened out. I ended up flipping properties with a partner while I lived in Japan, so I was overseas at the time. I eventually ended up in Montgomery, Alabama, and, start, and I was just there for one year, but I realized this is going to be a great place to invest, so I started buying properties there. I bought six in about a 10-month time frame. And then moved away. I moved to Germany, but I kept buying in Montgomery, Alabama until I retired in 2020. I think I just unpacked a lot there, but that's how I got started and where, and kind of where I got to where I am today. That's awesome. I'd love to dig a bit more into the logistics of buying rentals from overseas, how you handled that, Mm. you know, from finding the properties to, you know, doing your due diligence and ultimately having your property manager manage them and everything. Yeah. That's a that's a big process. So okay. let's start at the beginning. I haven't told this part of the story in a long time. And I, I like that you <laughs> that you asked it this way. I was in Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months. I attended War College. That's this is where the Air Force's War College is. And here 10 months, met a fellow military member who was investing in rental properties here. I owned one property in DC and I realized quickly that you just are, you're going to make more money here. You're buying houses cheaper and the rents are pretty good. And uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of competition. It wasn't like something where everybody from all these different states are coming in and trying to invest there. I started buying properties. and But I also ended up getting a property manager while I was living here because I knew that I was moving away. I was going to go somewhere. So I was working with a property manager and working with, let's say, I, I had an, you know, I had an appraiser. I had a a person that did inspections for me. I had some contractors. I had a real estate agent that I trusted. And so, what I mean by all of this is, I, I I sort of built my team. I didn't even realize it, but I built a team that I could use when I moved away. And I ended up going to Germany. So I move over to Germany, and I have six properties under my belt. I wasn't sure if the properties were going to do well. Because I bought them for good prices and they were running, they were running for a good price. And I kind of thought, well, is this going to work or are my tenants going to trash my place? And am I going to, you know, am I going to lose all my money? Well, things went well. And so I'm like, well, we got to keep buying in Montgomery. And so I kind of had a process down. My real estate agent, my real estate agent was helping me find properties and she would go in and she would take additional pictures of the property that I was considering buying, right? If I wanted to put a property under contract, 
usually I did that just, just from what my real estate agent was talking to me about and showing me and what I could see from pictures. Once it was under contract, I then had my property managing company go in. And sometimes they do this before I went under contract. But about, you know, I'd, I'd have my property management company go in and say, well, yes, this, this neighborhood's okay. You know, this, this floor plan looks good. Yeah, yeah, we like this. But they'd give their opinion too. So I had a real estate agent. I had a property manager. Then I had an inspection done on it. And the inspection was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't for the, a bank. It was for me. I was actually paying pa- cash for these properties. These, these properties were ranging in price from, I'd say, thirty to 60000 So I get an inspection done. And that means a full report with pictures and like a list of everything I had to fix. And so for being overseas, I kind of felt like I had three different people that were vetting the property for me that I trusted and knew and, you know, had had a relationship with. So it didn't seem that foreign to me, if that makes sense so far. Oh, oh the other thing that's pretty important to, to point out is that my property management company, and this is a trick that everybody will have when you're investing um, out of state or out of country, my property management company was willing to take on larger projects for me. I was buying things that needed a lot of work, you know, like maybe five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 worth of work. They were willing to take that on knowing that I was going to give that property over to them. They were trustworthy. They, they were keeping, you know, I, my expenses in check. They weren't jacking up prices. They were, you know, good at finding out how to do this stuff cheaply. So it ended up working out. Okay. So after you acquired the properties, had the property management company fix them up, were you then adding financing to the properties to pull some of your cash back out so that you could redeploy or just holding them in cash? You know, what's interesting about that is when I was, I I flipped houses for a while. I flipped about eight houses in DC. And when I flipped houses, I was the financing side and I had a person on the ground who was doing all the work, but I was doing all the financing. I was basically just buying them with 30 or fixed mortgages, but we'd end up just selling them, you know, quickly a few months later. I was putting up the down payments for these properties and and the down payments that I was putting up were usually 60 or $80,000. And which seemed like a lot at the time. But when I got to Montgomery, Alabama, and I realized I can buy these properties, like all in, completely own the property for like sometimes less than half what I was giving as a down payment in DC, (laughs) it really didn't seem like, I just like, I'm not going to finance this. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, something that's important to understand for your audience is that I'm one of these like, frugal saver investors. You know, I was somebody who always maxed my IRA, was always maxing my 401k in the military, which is called a TSP. And I was like, I'm like, an, I'm, with, I'm somebody who's an index fund investor. So kind of like put your money in the S&P 500 and just let it grow and compound. I did that in both in my brokerage accounts and in my investment accounts. And I had a decent amount of money saved up by the time 2013 rolled around and I was in Montgomery, Alabama, starting buying these houses. Not only did I have a decent amount of money saved up, but my house in, my house in Alexandria, Virginia was paid off. So that $280,000 house was paid off. So that's my very long way of answering your question. I didn't, you could have done this and I, I can still do it if I want to, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, what do you want to call it, burr or whatever you want to call it. I didn't put mortgages in the properties and then use that money to buy the next. I just had the cash to buy these properties. And when I ran out of cash at maybe number 11 or 12, then I sold the house in DC and took all that money and kept buying properties. Now, I don't think 
looking back, that wasn't the fastest way. Like that wasn't the ideal way to, to grow. But I would say that it was a fairly conservative way too, because, you know, had I done it with leverage and maybe bought 30 or 40 or 50 properties instead of the 20 that I had, if the market would have tanked or if there wasn't some serious problem, you know, maybe if COVID had been a little more scary and people had actually been shaken out of the market, well, those people might've been me. But since I was pretty much, you know, all paid off, I really had no financial worry when, when COVID showed up. Great. So was there anything that went majorly wrong while you were overseas and maybe a a rehab didn't go as planned or a tenant destroyed a property. I mean, things go sideways sometimes. I had State Farm as my insurance company. They had this kind of, they kind of changed the rules on me and I was buying properties at a fairly fast rate and they kind of changed the rule and they said, Rich, we can't, we can't insure the property until you have a render in place, until you have a signed lease. And so I was just kind of being cheap and I was just kind of like, well, you know, I'm just going to take my chances on that first couple weeks and just not insure the property, get it rehabbed, get it fixed up, and then get it insured as soon as possible. You know, just write, you know, as soon as it, get that lease, get it, get it insured and hope that nothing bad, nothing bad happens. But I was, I think it, there was this time where I was buying a house like one a month. And so it was just a hectic time because I was also in the military overseas and, and, and very busy in my military career. One day I got a phone call from my property manager and they said, you need to call your insurance company because this property you bought caught on fire. And, and they said, well, who, who's the insurance company? And I was like, oh, like, I think I forgot to, I think I forgot to get insurance on that property. So, um, that happened. I had a, I had a property, I, I had a property that I bought and I had tenants move in, but you know, I just got busy and forgot to call state farm and, and flip the switch and turn it on. And then I had a fire. Now that's a pretty bad story, but it didn't take the whole house. You know, it, a couch caught on fire. And I think I spent about like maybe seven or 8,000 rehabbing the property. And then when the couch caught on fire, I ended up spending another 8,000 like rehabbing the property and then, was, <laughs> and then was able to rent it out. And that was all out of pocket, unfortunately. So that's one of, you know, that's one of my scary stories. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a, it could have been a lot worse to be, you know, to be very clear that, uh, kind of a, a cheap bill Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in the grand scheme of things and how, how it could have gone. So today you self-manage and in my experience, a lot of folks kind of try to go the other direction. They start self-managing. They learn that this is for the birds. I hate it. I'm going to hire a property manager, but you went the other direction. Why? Wow, I mean, maybe what I'm going to say will, will be somewhat controversial. We'll see. <laughs> but I've worked with several different managing companies. And the one that I had for quite some time, the one that I started with in Montgomery and had in, in 2013 and had until about 2020, they were a pretty good company. They, they, I think they got a little bit, I don't know, dropped off a little bit every year, you know, like missing things, you know, not as fast, not as efficient, whatever. You know, as a husband-wife combo, the wife quit. You know, the wife was maybe a little more talented. When I got to the point where I was retired and I was in Alabama and I was living there in person and COVID happened, I was sort of, this happened to a lot of people. I was still being paid a full-time salary, but I like had nothing to do all day. You know, just sort of government efficiency at its best. 
I decided I'm just going to manage these myself. And I was kind of like fed up with certain aspects of my property manager, just things he couldn't get right. I don't know. I didn't like the way his reporting was. And, and the lesson that I learned from managing the property myself for about maybe a little more than three years now is that I'm not just saving the 10%. I'm not saving the 10% that he was charging. I'm saving a lot more than that. They were a pretty good company. They were pretty good, but nobody cares more than you do. They're your properties and nobody cares more than you do. I've put better tenants in the properties. I guess I just spend more time and maybe I have a better system. I don't know what it is, but I'm putting better tenants in the properties. They're staying longer. I'm responding to their inquiries faster. You know, somebody had the biggest problem I have here is HVAC, right? In the summer, you know, HVAC breaking or something. You usually have somebody there same day fixing it. Almost always same day. And that's just because I use, I use people that have full-time jobs, but they just do extra work for me in the evenings. And they love that, you know, my tenants love that. They're a little bit spoiled though, but, but because they get mad, they get mad when something's not done same day, but you know, they love that. And, you know, they want their friends to move into my properties and they don't want to move out of my properties. And I've just brought all my expenses way down. I mean, way down, you know, I, I just spend so much on HVAC. I'd spend so much on plumbing. I'd spend so much on, I don't know, electricians. And then once I take that over and sort of oversee it and watch the bottom line myself, I was just doing it so much cheaper. And I think another thing too is there was a lot of deferred maintenance when you have a property manager and you're living out of the country. I think they do your, their best to not give you big bills. And so when I came back after five or six years, there were just, every time somebody moved out, I was like, damn, there's a lot of work to do this property. And I did the work. And I guess once you do that work and then put somebody in it, then you tend to have several years where nothing happens. I just gave you another very long answer, but I found that I saved a lot more than 10%, really kept my expenses in check, and I have much happier tenants that stay longer. Makes a lot of sense. And you're being retired, you have you know the, the time and the mental space, if you will, to, to dedicate to managing the properties. I want to jump in and say, outside of maybe listing properties, I spend very, very, very little time managing the properties. I mean, very little time. I have lots of weeks where I might spend less than an hour managing the properties. And if I mean, if you're listing a property, then it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at, you gotta look at all the applications and you gotta, you know, be choosing people and running reports. But I don't have a lot of turnover. And so outside of that, it just doesn't take a lot of time. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to take on more rental properties. That's great. So you're keeping your tenants happy and they want to stay, but I'd also like to dig into systems that you've built or that you use to mm -hmm. offload things that you theoretically could be doing manually, but yeah. now you're not because you have systems and technology in place. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, you know, I'm somebody who self-manage, but I try to be like an absentee like an absentee manager to the, to the extent that I can be using technology. And I think the main two big things that I do that are massive time savings are being totally electronic and online for listing properties and then doing self-showings. And including with listing a property, it's also all the applications are online. And, you know, they're not paper. They're like, you know, click on this link and fill out the application and upload your documents. Okay, I'm going to run a credit check on you. Check your email, pay for the credit check. You know, okay, cool. Credit check is done. 
And then the lease is electronic. Hey, I'm going to send you this lease. You know, it's coming to you right now. DocuSign, click, click. Cool, you signed your lease. So all that stuff's really easy. And it started off during COVID. And I was like, well, this is great for COVID. But then I was kind of like, this is awesome. I want, even though there's, you know, COVID's not a case anymore. It's no big deal that we could go meet somewhere, but I didn't see a reason to. So I kind of kept that. And then self-showings, the application process for me, I use Facebook Messenger, I'm sorry, Facebook Marketplace and Zillow rentals. You know, I usually pay whatever premium fee there is to get upgraded so that more people see my stuff. And whenever people text and say, hey, I'm interested in this property, I have a cut and paste where I just say, here's the, here's the things that I care about. Here's my criteria. You know, this is your credit score, you know, evictions, no felonies, you know, three times the rent is income. And I say, you know, do you fit all these things? And 95% of the people don't even answer that. And so I filter <laughs> out all these, and I filter it all by text. I don't take any phone calls, all by text. And I have these other cut and paste things that I do where it's very little work to screen through hundreds of people and find one or two people that look good. And then sometimes I talk to them on the phone because sometimes they're kind of like, hey, you know, I haven't even talked to you yet. This could be a scam. But I'm only doing that with the people that I know are qualified to rent that property. They've already went and looked at it and they want to rent it. And so I've saved a ton of time by doing that. Self-showings is the other thing I'll talk about. Self-showings, the application process is all online. I have their application before they go look at the property. So I have all the information about them. I have a copy of their ID card and all this stuff. So I'm not scared to let them go see the property on their own. It has an electronic lockbox. I give them a code. They can go see the property whenever they want. They can't stand me up because I'm not going. You know, if, <laughs> if they don't show up, I don't care. If they show up an hour late, I don't care. It's just a huge time save. And I've been doing that for about three years now, and it works great. We had talked about this offline a bit, but the in theory, potential for squatters, yeah. at least in, in certain markets, you're well aware of it. But you know, what is your thought about that? Because I can basically hear our listeners out there saying, this guy's nuts for doing that. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just, just going to say it would never work in New York. It would never work in, you know, whatever, Seattle, right? It's not going to work in California. <laughs> well, guess what? I don't want to invest heavy in a place that's not landlord friendly. I just don't want to. Um, I'm not going to invest heavily in California or Seattle. I'm just not going to do it. I, I understand the level of you know tenant and landlord friendliness, and this is a fairly you know fairly landlord friendly, or I would just say landlord fair state. And you know if somebody doesn't want to pay, then it's possible to get them out before you go bankrupt. And I, I think that's I think that's an important thing to consider when you're when you're going to scale in a certain area. But the same is true for squatters. It's just not an issue in Montgomery, Alabama. It's not something that's happening to people. And if somebody were going were gonna to squat in my property, they would. it'd be very unusual because they would have filled out an entire application. I would have already checked to make sure that they made enough money. And I've already checked their prior rental reference. And then that person would be the one who squats. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That's true. Okay. So you're not sending that information to just anybody. You're doing a lot of screening until they yeah. get to that point. They've so already, they've already filled out an application and went through my verification process for income and prior rental reference before I'll let them go see the property. 
makes a lot of sense. So rewinding the clock, if you were, if you had the opportunity to speak with Rich when he was just getting started, you just got into the military, you want to invest in real estate, and maybe you're buying that first property in Northern Virginia. Pretend we're talking about today's market. Yeah. Though. What advice would you have for yourself in that position? <laughs> Again, it's it's my path is so much different than everybody else's. I think I was really scared to use leverage. You know, I was scared to have five or 10 or 15, you know, 30 year fixed loans and, and, and creative financing and all these kind of different things. And I think I would have said, you don't need to be scared of that. I, you know, uh, if you, if you understand the math, you're going to build wealth faster by responsible, responsibly leveraging debt. Now, of course you can do it in a stupid way. You can do it too quickly. I'm against, you know, cash advances on credit cards to flip houses, but that's what I would have told myself. I was very conservative for the longest time. It was just 20 paid off properties and I'd be wealthier and I'd be, you know, further along if I had embraced leverage earlier. Not, some, not the sense. lesson that you have to give most people. Still makes sense, yeah. you know, being conservative does hold us back, but it also reduced your risk. And, you know, considering the time when you were starting to invest right in the run up, Great Recession, everything yeah, like that, you know, mm -hmm. could have saved you. So right. can't run the experiment twice. But uh, uh, anyway, thanks for all the advice so far. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Rich, I've got three questions I ask every guest yeah. on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best deal you've ever done? Okay, the best deal I've ever done. I think that I have several that are somewhat comparable, but I really like a fourplex that I bought. And I think why did this fourplex do particularly well? It's probably how I bought it, you know? It's how you bought it and the price you get it for. And I think it's also the fact that multifamily, but in my, you know, in my case, it's just a fourplex, but the numbers work out so much better because I'm getting four separate rents for that one 30-year fixed loan at 4%. That just makes a huge, huge difference. The other thing too is that this was bought in a large package. You know, there's lots of times, you know, behind the scenes for, for people that like, if you're new to investing, you might not realize this, but usually all the big investors in a city, they often trade, little trade large investment packages with each other, right? Especially when somebody gets 80 or 90 years old or dies and they'll sell their 135 houses and, you know, whatever, whatever. It could be any size of a package. But I think a friend of mine bought a package of maybe like 20 houses and he liked almost all of those houses, but he hated the idea of owning a fourplex. And he almost thought that I was silly for, you know, liking a small multifamily. And he's rich. I'm buying this package, but will you just buy this damn fourplex? And, he, and I think the price was like 180 for me, 180,000. And, you know, 30, 30 year fixed loan, 4%, 25% down payment. I don't have it all perfect in my head, but I, I think that the mortgage is around like 600 and something dollars. And one month, one rent from one property covers the mortgage. Okay. And you know, that's a beautiful thing because there's still three more. So rent from one property covers the mortgage. And then you have, I would say the rent from the other property covers most of the expenses, and then the other two properties are cash flow. And that's including taking care of a mortgage. So that's a big win. I tried to buy every fourplex on that street, but I couldn't get anywhere near that price from anybody else. So um, that's one of my favorite deals. 
being in the right place at the right time with the right experience, the right relationships, yep. everything lined up for you on that one. So we had the best deal. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst deal. We all have them. What is the worst deal you ever did? I almost want to say it's like a worse deal, but it, but it taught a very important lesson. And it wasn't necessarily the deal where I lost the most money, but I think it was just very symbolic to me because I was, I was newer in my real estate career. I bought the townhouse for $280,000 in Alexandria, Virginia in 2003, turned that into a rental. I think you, you probably realize this, but to the listeners out there, like you don't get like stellar returns from a, a high-end, you know, like a, a high-end townhouse in a high cost of living area that you rent out, you're not making like big money from that. I guess you're going to do okay on, on appreciation, but you're not like cash flowing big time. Well, I bought that property, but like a year later it was worth 400,000. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm a genius at investing. I'm going to keep <laughs> buying properties. And I kept trying to buy properties, but I couldn't. It was, things were skyrocketing so fast. I was just like, it was like dropping the falling knife or something. I just, I was too scared to grab it. And I saw a lot of friends of mine and people that I knew were making a ton of money by flipping new construction. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's not something people talk about a lot. Flipping new construction in between 2001 and 2003, people were just making tons of money. I'm like, okay, I've watched too many people make money the last two years. My turn. I'm doing it. I think it might have been around 2005 when I finally got around to doing it. I'd proven that it would work by watching lots of people do it. And I bought a house maybe like for $400,000, a townhouse that was being built from scratch. It was like one of the first few properties out of a big, you know, 100, 100 properties planned. You know, I was in a trailer and there's a bunch of empty land and I signed a contract, $20,000. So I've locked in the price of $400,000. When it, when it was done a year, a year and a half later, hopefully that's going to sell for five hundred dollars or five fifty, dollars and just pocket all that money and just be rich. The only problem was that didn't happen. The only problem was the market stagnated and didn't grow at all. And lo and behold, I wasn't the only person that was planning on doing that. But the other hundred people that had invested in that were also hoping to do the exact same thing. Nobody was planning on living there. Everybody was planning on selling it like I was. And it just didn't work out. And so when, when the thing was built, I put it up for sale, I put it up for rent, and I couldn't get either one of those in the way that was going to get my money back. I had a sec, I had section eight person call me up and, and, you know, want like nine or 10 people to live there and they could give me enough money to, to cover my mortgage <laughs> and this brand new property with top of the line, everything. And I just, I just couldn't do it. So I, I think I offered my real estate agent some kind of a bonus. I don't know, 3000 extra to the you know agent that helps us sell it or something. And then somebody got it sold for me. And I made maybe six or $7,000. I thought of that as a huge failure because I really had in my mind that I was going to make $100,000. I spent a whole year, year and a half thinking that I had that money already. And I think that it was just, I think that it was a lesson to me. And I think that it informed the rest of my life as far as this lesson of if you watch somebody else do something and then make money, it doesn't mean that when you step up to do it, that everything's going to work out exactly the same. And that definitely, definitely applies to appreciation, especially in high cost of living areas. Wow. That's a tough lesson. At least you made money at it, though. It was painful that you didn't make what you thought, yeah, but yeah. would have could have been a lot worse. You could have, you know, lost a lot of money on I that. I think a lot of people, 
in that complex. I think a lot of houses just went up for sale and then went up into foreclosure and it, and it ended up being a really bad time. Ooh, yeah. Ouch. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Hmm. I'm somebody who has spent maybe the, you know, since I started buying these properties in about 2016, I'm somebody who's, you know, been on podcasts and, and talk. When I was in the military, I'd talk to people in the military a lot about how you should invest and how you should save and how you should invest in real estate. I think the lesson that I like to tell people the most is, and the lesson that I've learned is, you don't need to, I think there's a fear of missing out. And I think there's this, if you're in these Facebook groups, I don't know, bigger pockets group, whatever you want, whatever it is, watching podcasts, listening to podcasts, and it's, hey, I just wanted a contract on, you know, 150 units. Hey, I just, you know, I'm buying a 10 plex. And it's like, crap, everyone around me is doing so well. And I'm not buying anything. I suck. I think that you should take your time. I like to invest. In, I like to invest in real estate from a financial position of strength. And so for me, I had a ret retirement money that I was putting away. I had my military job and I was making extra money by flipping properties, putting money away, saving. I, you know, I was skipping big trips. I was skim skipping fancy meals. I was, I don't know. I was just doing all the things to put money aside to invest in real estate. And, you know, while some of my numbers sound stellar, oh my God, you have 30 properties or I retired with 20 paid off properties. That's insane. It's because from 2000 to 2013, I did everything I could to put away as much money as I could and invest well and save well and make smart moves and, and had some luck. And then in 2013, when this very unique opportunity came where I found this great city with great cash flow and ROI and things just worked out. And I could see, wow, this is even better than what I have in DC. I was in a position to take advantage of that financially. I jumped in and I did it. It only took 13 years of preparation to be an overnight success. <laughs> That's great. It's a great way to put it. And, you know, it takes time to build and time to grow and, mm -hmm. you know, being prepared when the opportunity arises. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to get in touch or track you down, where can they find you? Oh, I have a, a fun little TikTok page. Uh, it's called Rich on Money. Rich on Money. Follow me on TikTok. Uh, I have some, uh, a couple of pretty funny videos that went viral for some strange reason. Go take a look at it. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.